Testing one, two, three, testing one, two, three. This is Radio Free Mormon on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight's episode, let's do the time warp again. Well, I am back in the saddle here at Radio Free Mormon. It has been quite some time since I have sat down here at the microphone in my underground bunker all by myself to record an episode of Radio Free Mormon. I've certainly been busy enough in the meantime since the last occasion I did this. As most of you know, Bill Reel and I have started a live call-in show called Mormonism Live, which we have been doing now for over a year. The showtime for Mormonism Live is every Wednesday evening at 6.20 p.m. Mountain Time. We have had a fantastic time producing that show and putting different ideas together and having call-ins from our audience as well as a live chat going during the show. We have no idea of stopping that show or ceasing its weekly production, but on top of that and in addition to that, I want to begin once more recording the Radio Free Mormon podcast. This is largely because of my trip to Salt Lake City last November, November of 2021, to attend and present at the Thrive Conference there. I was fortunate enough to be the first presenter. It's always good to go first because you don't have to follow anybody else. Something that can be intimidating depending upon how well the person in front of you did with the audience. But as I say, I was able to go first. I had 15 minutes in which to present. And after that was over, I left the main room to go out into the lobby, probably to get a Diet Coke from a vending machine. And people began to come up to me and talk to me about the show, Radio Free Mormon. And after the first people came up to me, more people came up to me, and then more people came up to me. In fact, I never made it back into the main room to watch any of the other presenters because I was entirely captivated, and I mean that in the best sense of the word, by listeners to the show who wanted to talk to me in the lobby. I was in the lobby on my feet talking to listeners from 10 o'clock in the morning until 6 o'clock in the evening. Fortunately, I did get an hour off for lunch. But by the time it was over, I had met many, many people who told me how much the Radio Free Mormon podcast means to them and has meant to them in their own personal spiritual journeys. And over and over again, I heard the comment made to me, don't stop the podcast. Keep podcasting. Keep doing the Radio Free Mormon podcast. And certainly over the past year, I've heard a number of people say that they missed this Radio Free Mormon podcast. And every time I have heard that, I have felt a twinge in my conscience because I have simply been too, too busy to produce new Radio Free Mormon podcasts. At the same time, I am running a full-time law practice as well as doing a weekly Mormonism live show with Bill Reel. But because of this experience I had, I have made the decision now to begin to retire from my practice of law. When I say begin to retire, I do not mean to stop it immediately and all at once. In fact, the practice of law does not lend itself easily to such a hard and fast retirement date. I have many clients whose cases are pending and who still need me to represent them. But what this does mean is that I am intentionally and strategically going to begin to decrease the number of new clients that I take. And in fact, I have already started that process. The idea is to reduce the amount of time that I have to spend in court and doing legal work so that I can free up more time to get back in the saddle with Radio Free Mormon podcasts, which is what I'm doing this morning on January 14th, 2022. As you might imagine, this is a bit of a leap of faith for me, because I have been practicing law for 32 years now this month. My primary source of income has been from my practice of law, and now I am intentionally decreasing my practice of law, which means that at the same time, I am intentionally decreasing my normal source of revenue, which in turn means that I am going to have to be relying more and more upon the donations of my listeners in order to keep me afloat financially. I want to thank each and every one of my listeners who has contributed and made donations to the show. And now for all of you who have not yet made a donation to the show, now is the time to step up and be counted. Now is the time when I'm relying upon you in order to continue to make these podcasts. It's like the end of the third Indiana Jones movie where there's that bridge that he can't see because it's rendered invisible, but he has to step out on the bridge to cross the chasm. And it is that step of faith out onto that bridge that Indiana Jones cannot see 
that I feel like I'm doing by shifting from the practice of law to a greater emphasis on podcasting. Believe me, I have many, many things to talk about. I have more things to talk about regarding Mormonism than I have had time to talk about them. In fact, I am still waiting for an opportunity to do my review of Elder Oaks' talk at the 2018 B1 conference from three and a half years ago. That's how backlogged I am. So please, once again, if you have not yet donated to Radio Free Mormon, I urge you right now to go to the RadioFreeMormon.org website, click on the donate button, and make a monthly recurring contribution. $5 a month, $10 a month, $50 a month, whatever you can afford. More than ever, I need your donations to keep Radio Free Mormon broadcasting behind enemy lines. And now on to tonight's subject. Once again, the title of tonight's show is Let's Do the Time Warp Again. The first thing I'm going to talk about tonight is A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens. I'm going to talk about the use of time in that book and in that story. And then I'm going to segue into a similar thing that happens in the LDS Temple Endowment. But first to A Christmas Carol. It was 2009 when I began to read the complete works of William Shakespeare. I was 50, no, I was 49 years old. Oh my gosh, I'm so old now. I was 49 years old at the time, and it occurred to me that really I needed to start reading all the different works of literature that I had managed to avoid reading in high school and as well throughout the rest of my life after that. I had focused primarily on LDS books and books on Mormonism, and I felt the need to start reading literature. It took me two and a half years to work my way through the complete works of William Shakespeare, which gives you an indication of the fact that it was not easy going for me. But once I was done with reading the works of William Shakespeare, I started thinking about all the libraries full of classic literature. And being aware of Mark Twain's definition of a classic, that a classic is a book that everybody's heard of, but nobody reads, I nevertheless wanted to start reading them, thinking that there must be a reason that they're classics in the first place. So I began reading classic literature and finding myself very spiritually and emotionally and intellectually fed through the process. Some of them resonated more with me, some not so much, but I suppose that's the way of things. But at some point after a few years of doing that, it did occur to me that I needed to read something by Charles Dickens. Now that is a famous name in literature. I had never actually read anything by Charles Dickens other than a half-hearted attempt to read a few chapters of Great Expectations back in eighth grade in Kent Junior High School. Let's just say that at that young age, the only impression this book by Dickens made upon me was that it was boring. But that, as it turns out, was a reflection more of my age than of the material itself. And so I decided I needed to read something by Charles Dickens, but he's written so many books, which one should I start with? And I thought, and I thought, and I thought, well, it's not going to be great expectations. So the question then arose, which of his books am I going to read first? He has so many books that he's written and so many that are famous, and I decided to read A Tale of Two Cities, the one with the famous opening line, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times, and at the end we have the hero, Sidney Carlton, of the story say, "'Tis a far, far better thing I do than I have ever done, and tis a far, far better resting place I go to than I have ever known." But that was really about all that I knew. I'd seen maybe a movie version of it, but that was some time ago as well. Anyway, I read A Tale of Two Cities, and I was overwhelmed by how amazing this book was and how incredible Charles Dickens is as an author. And I was struck by the thought that I had almost lived my entire life upon this earth without ever reading anything by Charles Dickens. And what a tragedy that would have been. Since that time, I've read a number of other books by Charles Dickens, David Copperfield, The Old Curiosity Shop, Oliver, and yes, Great Expectations. And believe it or not, I found that when I was reading Great Expectations in my 50s, I enjoyed it an awful lot more than when I was trying to read it when I was 13. But of course, Charles Dickens' single most famous book has to be A Christmas Carol. It is one of the most famous stories in all of literature, and mainly because it's been produced so many times in so many different venues. 
There have been movies made about it, multiple movies about it, even a cartoon version with Mr. Magoo that I have loved since I was a kid. There have been musicals made about it. There have been radio plays made of it. And the story has been popularized to the point where pretty much everybody in the Western English-speaking world is familiar with the general outline of the story. We know that Ebenezer Scrooge is a wealthy, though miserly, man. He does not have any time or any inclination to help out his fellow men or humankind in general. And then one night, indeed on Christmas Eve, he receives a visit of three ghosts. Well, four ghosts if you count Marley. Marley comes first. That was his former business partner who was since deceased, who shows up very early on Christmas Eve to tell Scrooge that he's going to be receiving a visit from three other ghosts. And we know that those will be the ghost of Christmas past, the ghost of Christmas present, and the ghost of Christmas yet to come. We know that the ghost of Christmas past takes Scrooge on a journey into the past, into his past, to see events that happened when he was younger and that ended up causing him to become the miser and the Scrooge, if you will, that he became in the story. The next ghost is the ghost of Christmas present who shows up to show Scrooge what's going on in London at that time in places and houses where Scrooge doesn't normally go to and would not otherwise be able to know what was happening. And finally, the ghost of Christmas yet to come appears and shows Scrooge what will happen in the future. And Scrooge is very, very concerned that this is something that is inevitably going to happen and hopes and prays and indeed finds out that yes, it is true that he can change the future by changing himself. He wakes up on Christmas morning, a new man full of Christmas spirit and is ever after much happier and very changed for the better. So the story of Christmas Carol deals with time at its outset. It deals with the past, it deals with the present, and it deals with the future. And that has partly to do with why I'm calling tonight's episode, Let's Do the Time Warp Again. Because there is a time warp that's going on, even though these might be dreams, even though these might be visions of some sort that are going on in A Christmas Carol, there is definitely a time warp aspect to the plot. But more than that, more than that, what Charles Dickens does is overlays it with another time warp aspect. And here's what I mean. I've mentioned how popularized the story of A Christmas Carol has been since it came off the press in the 19th century. And generally, my understanding of the story is just what I've said, that Marley shows up on Christmas Eve, tells Scrooge he's going to be visited by three ghosts. Scrooge is visited by three ghosts, and he wakes up the next morning, a changed man. That's it. It's all done. And I think that the different productions of A Christmas Story pretty much follows that same plot. However, I have made it a practice, maybe even a ritual, to read the actual story, A Christmas Carol, every Christmas time. And I've done that for about the past five years. I got a nice little version of it here from Chronicle Books. It's about 100 pages long, and it has some nice illustrations in it. And this is the version that I read once a year. This past Christmas has been so busy. We had family up. We did a lot of things with family. And my reading of A Christmas Carol did not get completed before Christmas. In fact, I only was able to finish it a couple of days ago. And there's something very, very interesting that happens in here in relation to time and that is different from the popularized version of the story as I have seen it in movies and watched it on stage productions. And it is this playing with time that Charles Dickens does that's led me to call tonight's episode, Let's Do the Time Warp Again. Now, as a side note, we open with Scrooge at the counting house with his employee, Bob Cratchit. And there are a number of things that happen at the counting house. But after he leaves the counting house and heads home, Scrooge eats a small bowlful of gruel. And the way I understand that to have been presented before is that Scrooge is so cheap that he won't even spend money for food on himself other than to get himself some very, very cheap gruel, and that's what he eats for dinner. According to the story, though, that's not actually what happens, and I was somewhat surprised to find this out. Yes, Scrooge is very cheap, but he's not quite that cheap. He does actually have to eat food. And according to the story, before he heads home to have his gruel, he stops by a tavern to have dinner which makes a lot more sense. So apparently he's willing to pay for some food, some normal food above and beyond gruel to eat just to keep body and soul together. And here's what it says. This is in chapter one. Scrooge took his melancholy dinner in his usual melancholy tavern 
and having read all the newspapers and beguiled the rest of the evening with his banker's book, went home to bed. So it's only after he has gone home and is preparing for bed that we find the incident with the gruel. Quite satisfied, he closed his door and locked himself in, double-locked himself in, which was not his custom because he's a little bit shaken by some strange things he's been seeing involving the door knocker. Thus secured against surprise, he took off his cravat, put on his dressing gown and slippers and his nightcap, and sat down before the fire to take his gruel. So he does eat gruel, but it's not the only thing he eats. Okay, so let's get to the time warp aspect, shall we? Marley shows up. Marley's a wonderful character in this story. And what Marley tells Scrooge is very different in the story from the movies that I've seen. He doesn't tell him that three ghosts are going to appear to him that night at different times. He says that three ghosts will appear to him, but one will appear to him that night. The second will appear to him the following night. And the third will appear to him the night after that. So it's one ghost per night, three ghosts on three nights. Here's what he says, Marley speaking. Without their visits, said the ghost, you cannot hope to shun the path I tread. Expect the first tomorrow when the bell tolls one. Now that line confused me a bit because I was thinking, is he saying that it has to wait for the next night for the first ghost to even appear? Apparently that's not the case. Apparently what it is, is that this is earlier in the evening and when the ghost, i.e. Marley, is saying the first ghost will appear tomorrow, that means after midnight, it is technically a new day. So I think it is later that night, but after 12, and it's at one o'clock when the bell tolls one, and so technically it's tomorrow, and so that's why I think he phrases it that way. But it goes on. Couldn't I take them all at once and have it over, Jacob? Hinted Scrooge. Here's what Jacob Marley says back. Expect the second, the second ghost, on the next night at the same hour. So the first ghost is going to be that night at 1 o'clock a.m. The second ghost is going to be the next night at the same hour, which would be 1 o'clock a.m. The third, it goes on. The third upon the next night when the last stroke of 12 has ceased to vibrate. Look to see me no more, and look that, for your own sake, you remember what has passed between us. So it's very clear from what Marley is saying is that these visits from the three ghosts are going to take three separate nights in succession. And when I read this, I was getting confused. And I thought, well, hang on a second. I already know the story. We all know the story that it's on Christmas morning that Scrooge wakes up and he's a changed man having received the visits of all three ghosts. And I'm thinking, well, hang on a second. I was pretty sure that this is the night before Christmas because we had the whole scene with Bob Cratchit, remember, wanting the next day off, which is Christmas. And Scrooge says a poor excuse for picking a man's pocket every 25th of December. And I went back and checked it. And yes, absolutely, that's the case. So how can it be that the story starts the day before Christmas Marley visits the night before Christmas. Marley promises three visits from three ghosts on three successive nights. And then after all the ghosts appear, Scrooge wakes up a changed man. And it's not two days after Christmas. It is Christmas morning. Something strange is going on here. And what Dickens is doing is he is playing with time. He is doing the time warp. And here's what happens later that night. It's very interesting to me because a long passage in the book is devoted to Scrooge's confusion over this very issue. Chapter one ends with, and being, talking about Scrooge, and being from the emotion he had undergone, or the fatigues of the day, or his glimpse of the invisible world, or the dull conversation of the ghost, or the lateness of the hour, much in need of repose, he needs rest, went straight to bed without undressing, and fell asleep upon the instant. Now that's the end of chapter one. It doesn't tell us how late the hour is. We have to wait till chapter two to find out that actually Scrooge had stayed up after one o'clock. He hadn't gone to bed until two o'clock. And I suppose that makes a degree of sense in as much as it might be kind of hard to sleep if you're expecting a ghost at one o'clock in the morning. But this is how the second chapter begins. When Scrooge awoke, it was so dark that looking out of bed, he could scarcely distinguish the transparent window from the opaque walls of his chamber. He was endeavoring to pierce the darkness with his ferret eyes when the chimes of a neighboring church struck the four quarters. 
so he listened for the hour. To his great astonishment, the heavy bell went on from six to seven, and from seven to eight, and regularly up to twelve, then stopped. Twelve! It was past two when he went to bed. Now, this is where we find out that it was after two o'clock when Scrooge went to bed. Remember, Marley has told him the first ghost is going to show up at one. Scrooge doesn't get to bed until two. Wait a second. Wait a second. And now, actually, that I'm reading this, it is quite possible that the first ghost, when it says, will show up tomorrow at one o'clock in the morning. That may have been the next night and not just after midnight that night. Regardless, there's a great deal of confusion, intentional confusion being inserted into the story by Dickens. To his great astonishment, the heavy bell went on from six to seven and from seven to eight and regularly up to 12, then stopped. 12, it was past two when he went to bed. The clock was wrong. An icicle must have got into the works. 12, so he goes to bed after two o'clock in the morning, he wakes up and the clock is striking 12. He appears to have gone backward in time, which actually makes a good deal of sense since the first ghost that's going to show up to him is the ghost of Christmas past. It's a nice touch going on. He touched the spring of his repeater to correct the most preposterous clock. Its rapid little pulse beat 12 and stopped. So he checks with his watch. It's the same as the clock he's hearing outside. It is really 12 o'clock. Why, it is impossible, said Scrooge that I can have slept through a whole day and far into another night, because that's the first possibility. He had to have slept an entire day and into the next night at midnight and wake up to hear the clock striking 12. It's impossible that I can have slept through a whole day and far into another night. It is impossible that anything has happened to the sun, and this is 12 at noon. So that's the second possibility. Either he slept an entire day to wake up at midnight, or he has slept till noon of the next day, and what he's hearing is the clock strike noon, because of course the clock is going to strike 12, whether it's noon or whether it's midnight. But it can't be noon because it's completely dark outside. So he says, it is impossible that anything has happened to the sun, and this is 12 at noon, the idea being an alarming one. See how much Dickens makes of this aspect of the story. The idea being an alarming one, he scrambled out of bed and groped his way to the window. He was obliged to rub the frost off with the sleeve of his dressing gown before he could see anything and could still see very little. All he could make out was that it was still very foggy and extremely cold and that there was no noise of people running to and fro and making a great stir, as there unquestionably would have been if night had beaten off bright day and taken possession of the world. So in other words, if it was really noon, but it's completely dark outside and night has conquered day, there would have been a lot of people out there talking about it and a lot of noise, but he doesn't hear anything. So apparently it really is 12 midnight. Scrooge went to bed again and thought and thought and thought it over and over and could make nothing of it. The more he thought, the more perplexed he was and the more he endeavored not to think, the more he thought. Then going down a bit, Scrooge lay in this state until the chime had gone three quarters more. So in other words, at every quarter of the hour, every 15 minutes, there is a chime to mark the time. So he lay in his bed until the chime had gone three quarters more. So now it is 1245 at night when he remembered on a sudden that the ghost had warned him of a visitation when the bell tolled one. He resolved to lie awake until the hour was past, and considering that he could no more go to sleep than go to heaven, this was perhaps the wisest resolution in his power. So the main thing I want to bring up here is that Dickens is playing with time. It does appear that Marley is to be interpreted when he says the first visit will be tomorrow night at one o'clock in the morning. He doesn't mean that same night. He means the following night. Scrooge stays up past two o'clock, goes to bed, wakes up to hear the clock striking 12, and he finds out that it's actually 12 midnight. He lies awake in his bed until the clock works its way around through the first quarter hour, the second quarter hour, the third quarter hour after midnight, and finally it's getting to one o'clock in the morning when the bell will chime and the first ghost will appear, who introduces himself by saying, I am the ghost of Christmas past. Long past, inquired Scrooge. No, says the ghost, your past. So we know the ghost of Christmas past takes Scrooge back to view scenes from his childhood, from his youth. And then we get to the next chapter, which is titled The Second 
of the three spirits. And at the end of the chapter, right before that, we find this. He, Scrooge, was conscious of being exhausted after his visit with the first ghost, the ghost of Christmas past, and overcome by an irresistible drowsiness, and further of being in his own bedroom. He gave the cap a parting squeeze, in which his hand relaxed and had barely time to reel to bed before he sank into a heavy sleep. So the ghost of Christmas past shows up at one o'clock, takes him for a ride for a number of destinations, which takes some amount of time. Scrooge is very sleepy at the end of this visitation, goes to bed, and wakes up again in time to find the clock striking one yet again. Remember, Marley said that it would be at one o'clock for the first ghost, the next night at one o'clock for the second ghost, and for some reason it changes for the third ghost to be midnight on the following night. So Scrooge has gone to sleep, and the chapter, titled The Second of the Three Spirits, opens with awakening in the middle of a prodigiously tough snore, and sitting up in bed to get his thoughts together, Scrooge had no occasion to be told that the bell was again upon the strike of one. Now we move down in the text, and it says, Now being prepared for almost anything, he was not by any means prepared for nothing. Because that's what happened, nothing. When the bell struck one and no shape appeared, he was taken with a violent fit of trembling. So now either Scrooge has gone to the next night at one o'clock, which we know he can't have done because he wakes up the morning after the visit of all three ghosts on Christmas Eve and he wakes up on Christmas morning. And yet, according to the chronology of the story, the first ghost appears at one o'clock, takes him on a tour of his youth. Scrooge gets sleepy at the end, goes to sleep, and wakes up in the middle of the night, and the clock strikes one again. Scrooge meets the ghost of Christmas present, and they have a conversation. And in the conversation, Scrooge tells us that his understanding is that it was the night before that he had the visit from the first ghost, the ghost of Christmas past. He says, spirit, talking to the ghost of Christmas present. Spirit, said Scrooge, submissively, conduct me where you will. I went forth last night on compulsion. So there he's talking about the first visit from the ghost of Christmas past. I went forth last night upon compulsion, and I learned a lesson which is working now. Tonight, if you have aught to teach me, let me profit by it. So there Scrooge is underlining the fact that he thinks that this is happening in successive nights and he's somehow sleeping through the days and he's been led to expect that and we as the readers have been led to expect that by what Marley told him would happen. So now Scrooge has his visions or visitations with the ghost of Christmas present at various places throughout the city at his nephew's house as well as at the Cratchit's house. He can see what's going on there and now we get to the end of his visit with the ghost of Christmas present. It was a long night. If it were only a night, ah, now we get the first hint that maybe, maybe, it was a long night. It took a long time for this visit with the ghost of Christmas present to the various places. It was a long night, if it were only a night. But Scrooge had his doubts of this, because the Christmas holidays appeared to be condensed into the space of time they passed together. So here we see some more funny business with time, that the time of the Christmas holidays themselves seem to be condensed into the time that he's passing together with the ghost of Christmas present. It was strange, too, that while Scrooge remained unaltered in his outward form, the ghost grew older, clearly older. Scrooge had observed this change, but never spoke of it until they left a children's Twelfth Night party. When looking at the spirit as they stood together in an open place, he noticed that its hair was gray. So going back, when it talks about Scrooge understanding that the Christmas holidays appeared to be condensed into the space of time they passed together, he and the ghost of Christmas present, he's talking about the 12-day period between Christmas and Twelfth Night, which is typically January 6th sometimes called Epiphany, on which the visit of the three magi to the young Jesus is celebrated. So he's saying that even though their visitations comprise 12 days, it seems to be compressed into the space of time that he and the ghost pass together. And Scrooge, seeing that the ghost of Christmas present is getting clearly older, asks him this question, are spirits' lives so short? And the ghost of Christmas present replies, my life upon this globe is very brief. It ends tonight. Tonight, cried Scrooge. 
Tonight at midnight, says the ghost. Hark, the time is drawing near. The chimes were ringing the three quarters past 11 at that moment. So now, either Scrooge has gone forward to the next night, or he has gone back in time. Because remember, the ghost of Christmas present showed up at 1 o'clock in the morning, as had the ghost of Christmas past. It was the third ghost, the ghost of Christmas yet to come, who will show up at midnight. And as I say, I'm not sure why it is the third ghost shows up at midnight, but maybe it's because it's a rather spooky ghost and more suitable to showing up at midnight, the witching hour. So now Scrooge has spent a long period of time with the ghost of Christmas present and finds out that it is 15 minutes till midnight, even though this ghost showed up at one o'clock in the morning. And then finally, he says his farewell to the ghost of Christmas present, and the bell struck 12. Scrooge looked about him for the ghost of Christmas present and saw it not. As the last stroke ceased to vibrate, so now it's midnight, he remembered the prediction of old Jacob Marley and lifting up his eyes beheld a solemn phantom, draped and hooded, coming like a mist along the ground towards him. And that ends that chapter. The next chapter is the last of the spirits, the ghost of Christmas yet to come. And we remember all of the visions that that ghost gives to Scrooge. And this is definitely the creepiest part of the story. But finally, that ghost leaves. And by this point, we would think it is at least three days after Christmas, or maybe even four days after Christmas. But much to Scrooge's surprise, not only is he a changed man, is he a happy man, is he a much more giving and loving man, but also he is shocked to find out that when he wakes up, it is Christmas morning. It's not days after Christmas, it's the very next day. And this is what Scrooge says, it's Christmas day. I haven't missed it. The spirits have done it all in one night. Now that's kind of a famous line that usually survives into most adaptations. But the reason that he's so shocked about it is because it was supposed to be Three nights. That's what Jacob Marley told him. But it wasn't. It was one night. So it does appear that instead of going forward to the next night each time, which makes some sense, it was actually happening on one night, which means that each time the spirits appeared, somehow Scrooge was going back in time. The ghost of Christmas passed. Scrooge goes to bed after two o'clock, but the ghost shows up at one and takes Scrooge for the many visits. After that, Scrooge wakes up and the chimes are striking one again, which means he's gone back in time a second time. And then he meets the ghost of Christmas present. The ghost of Christmas present takes Scrooge to look at all the different places. And then once again, Scrooge goes back in time, not to one o'clock, but to midnight for his visit from the third ghost, the ghost of Christmas yet to come. Scrooge wakes up in the morning and it is Christmas day. Okay, so why do I go into all that detail? I hope first off that it's somewhat interesting to you. I know it was interesting to me and I actually had to mark the passages and think about what was going on in order to follow this. It's clear something weird's going on, but I really had to concentrate on what it is that the author is trying to convey because it's not normal. Scrooge knows it's not normal. He says it's not normal, and indeed it is not. I think that at least in part what Dickens is trying to do is show that time does not run in the story the same way that it runs in the real world. Time is very linear in the real world. It never goes back upon itself, and yet in this story, it does go back on itself multiple times times. And what this signals to the reader is that we have entered a space that is not part of the real world. Time doesn't run the same way in this space as it does elsewhere. So it signals to us that something special is going on. It signals to us that this is a liminal space where amazing things can happen, where the normal laws of time and space do not apply and where the powers of the divine and the supernatural can freely mix with those in mortality. All right, so that is the time warp as it applies to A Christmas Carol. Now, I told you that I was going to apply this to the LDS Temple Endowment, and here's why I see a similar thing going on there. I remember the first time I went through the temple to get my own endowment was back in November of 1979. It was in Provo, Utah at the Provo Temple, just across the street and up the hill a bit from the Missionary Training Center. 
I was one of those missionaries who did not get his endowment prior to going to the MTC, and I think it probably had something to do with the fact that I was the only member of the church in my family, and my family was not arranging and encouraging me to get my own endowment. Obviously, they couldn't go inside the temple, so it wasn't something that was high on their priority list if they were even aware of it at all. But I went down to the MTC, got checked in, and the very next P-Day, i.e. preparation day, which I think was Wednesdays if I'm recalling correctly, I went to the temple with the other missionaries in my district. It was a unique experience. At least the first time going through was unique to me. After that, it started getting a little bit more repetitive and a little bit more familiar. But I remember the first time I went through, I was somewhat overwhelmed by all the knowledge, the names, the signs, and the tokens that were getting piled upon me. I didn't have any place to write down the information. All I knew was that there was going to be a very important quiz at the end of the endowment where I was going to be responsible for remembering and reciting all the different names, signs, and penalties, and I had to do it correctly if I had any hope of getting into the celestial kingdom. What I did not know at that point was that there would actually be an individual standing right by my side at the veil to help me through and to help me remember everything it was that I needed to know in case I forgot. And believe it or not, yes, I did forget some of the words. The thing that occurred to me at the time is that I would have been much less anxious during my first endowment if I had known at the outset that there would be somebody at the veil to help me at the end. I could probably have focused a little bit more on what was going on and what was transpiring rather than trying to keep all of these phrases, these words, these names, these signs, these tokens in my head for use at a later period. And I'd like to recommend to President Nelson now that while he's busy tinkering with lots of different aspects of the temple, he might add that language to the beginning of the temple endowment just to let everybody know, hey, don't kill yourself trying to remember everything that's going on because there'll be somebody there to help you at the end. It's just a thought. Now I know that going through the temple, especially pre-1990, so we definitely had the penalties, The penalties can be very concerning to some people. There are different aspects of the temple that strike people in different ways. But the thing I found the most remarkable about the temple endowment my first time through was really not the penalties, and it wasn't all the different name signs and tokens that I had to keep in my mind. It was the appearance in the middle of the endowment of three very unusual and out-of-place people. Now, we all know that the temple endowment starts with the creation before the earth is formed. And we've got Elohim, we've got Jehovah, we've got Michael, and they're creating everything. And then Michael comes down. He's placed in the garden by Jehovah. He becomes Adam. Eve is created out of one of his ribs. It's either the blonde Eve or the brunette Eve, depending upon which version of the film you're seeing. And there were many lively debates among the missionaries, at least the elders, as to which of the Eves was the most attractive. And thinking back on it at this time, it was definitely the brunette Eve. I was team brunette Eve. But Lucifer shows up, and that makes sense because he's sort of part of the story. Of course, it was a serpent in the original story, but it has been interpreted mostly thereafter by Christians to be representative of Lucifer or Satan. He shows up, he tempts Eve, Eve brings the apple to Adam, Adam goes ahead and he eats and she eats and actually she eats and then he eats, but regardless, they fall out of the garden, they're in the lone and dreary world. Lucifer's there as well, and Lucifer showed up with a Protestant minister. Now that's strange, what the heck is a Protestant minister doing, talking to Adam and Eve when Protestantism was not going to be around for, oh, well, a long time after that. That was the first thing that was strange. But the thing that was really, really strange is who should show up next to talk to Adam and Eve but Peter, James, and John, the three apostles from the New Testament. And for some reason, I think they threw me off more than the appearance of the Protestant minister. (laughs) What on earth are Peter, James, and John doing talking to Adam and Eve? They're completely out of sequence. This is not chronological. There is a time warp that is going on. Now, I have to tell you that, of course, I'm looking at this and I'm trying to understand it and make sense of it within the context of the Mormonism that I had learned in the year and four months since being baptized and prior to receiving my endowment, which included, of course, a knowledge of the pre-mortal existence. And so the natural place for my head to go to was that Peter, James, and John were actually in pre-mortal form. These are spirits that are appearing to Adam and Eve to talk with them, to instruct them, to give them the further light and knowledge that was promised from God. The problem with this interpretation 
is that the endowment itself rules it out. Because if Peter, James, and John are in premortality, they are spirits. They do not have bodies of flesh and blood or bone yet. And they won't for another several thousand years until they are born. However, you recall that during the endowment, Peter reaches out his hand to Adam and gives him, I believe it is the first token of the Aaronic priesthood with its accompanying name and sign. Now, a spirit could give the name and the sign, but a spirit cannot give the token because the token is a hand clasp. And even though it happens off screen, we know what that hand clasp is because we are about to receive it ourselves as we are attending the temple and we find out that yes, it is a handshake. You cannot get a handshake from a spirit. In fact, the rules of the game are that spirits are not going to shake hands with mortals because it is against the order of heaven to deceive. And this is found in section 129 of the Doctrine and Covenants given February 9th, 1843, which would have been around the same time as the endowment was being formulated by Joseph Smith. It talks about the different beings that exist in heaven and the ones that can appear to a person and how it is that you can know whether it is a being from heaven or a being from hell. Because there would be embodied spirits from heaven, there would also be unembodied spirits from heaven, those who have not been born yet, but it could also be a spirit of the devil, which would be unembodied too. So there are two different kinds of spirits that could exist, a good spirit and a bad spirit. How do you know the difference? It's easy to tell the difference with a spirit that has a body because we know that's not going to be a bad spirit because Satan's never going to get a body, right? So verse four, when a messenger comes saying he has a message from God, offer him your hand and request him to shake hands with you. This is the famous pull my finger revelation. If he be an angel, he will do so, and you will feel his hand. That's the embodied angel, right? If he be the spirit of a just man made perfect, which is what Peter, James, and John would be to Adam and Eve, if indeed Peter, James, and John are pre-mortal spirits at the time and have not yet been born, if he be the spirit of a just man made perfect, he will come in his glory, for that is the only way he can appear. Ask him to shake hands with you, but he will not move because it is contrary to the order of heaven for a just man to deceive, but he will still deliver his message. So that's the issue here. Peter shakes hands or gives a hand clasp, the first token of the Aaronic priesthood to Adam. So we know that Peter is not in spirit form. He is not pre-mortal. He is either mortal or post-mortal. So we don't have the easy explanation that it's just a pre-mortal spirit. This is something where a time warp is happening again. We have not just one individual, Peter, but all three, Peter, James, and John, who are not having a body, according to Mormon doctrine, until thousands of years after Adam and Eve leave the Garden of Eden, and even thousands of years until after they pass away. And yet the temple endowment presents Peter, James, and John as appearing in the flesh, to Adam and Eve shortly after their expulsion from the Garden of Eden in order to give them further light and knowledge. This is and was mind-blowing to me. How can this possibly happen? Well, it can't happen. That's the whole thing. It can't happen in the regular and normal course of things any more than those three ghosts could appear to Ebenezer Scrooge all in one night. If it was in three nights, it would make sense. It could be linear, but it wasn't. It was all in one night, so we know that he was actually going backward in time, backward in time, backward in time with the appearance of each of the three ghosts. In A Christmas Carol, it signals us that we have entered a liminal place, a liminal space, where the normal laws of time, and maybe even matter, do not apply here anymore. If Rod Serling were here, he would call this the twilight zone. It is a dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. A journey into a wondrous land whose boundaries are that of imagination. That's a signpost up ahead. Your next stop, the twilight zone. Not my best impression, but that's as good as it gets. So here we enter into the twilight zone in the LDS Temple Endowment. And what it does is it signals to me that we are now in a special, supernatural, holy, sacred space. And it signals it not just because it's in a 
temple building which has been set apart and dedicated as a sacred space but also through the very structure of the endowment ceremony itself it signals us that we are in a special sacred space regardless of where the ceremony itself is performed it would signal the same thing to us just as well if we were experiencing the endowment outside a building even on a mountaintop that we are in a special space. And the special space is created by the story itself. Now, I do want to add here that there is a theory that exists. I have not thoroughly investigated this theory, but I do want to present it here because I think it's very interesting and there may indeed be some truth to it. We know that Joseph Smith came up with at least the foundational aspects and components of the endowment back in the 1840s in Nauvoo. He passed away, and according to Brigham Young at least, prior to his passing away in 1844, Joseph Smith told Brigham that he committed the temple endowment to Brigham Young's hands, that Joseph Smith had done the best he could under the circumstances in which they were placed to formulate it, but it needed some tweaking it needed some streamlining it needed a little bit of modification and brigham said that he had received revelation i believe from god in order to complete the modification of the temple endowment so there's part of the temple endowment that joseph smith was responsible for and then there's also part of the temple endowment that brigham young was responsible for we know that the history of the church was edited by Brigham Young and other apostles subsequent to Joseph Smith's death and prior to publication. In a previous episode, actually long previous, it may have been about five years ago, and I'm pretty sure it was in my two-part podcast titled Apostolic Coup d'Etat, where we talked about some of the instances where the apostles edited the history of the church from what it originally said and changed it just enough in order to help support the claims of the apostles to leadership in the church, which they had already assumed. So they're taking the text, they're changing it a bit in order to make it look like, yes, we are the ones who really should have had the leadership position all along and that Joseph Smith agreed to it. Because look, here's what Joseph Smith is saying. Well, after they change his words a little bit, right? So there is a theory that what Brigham Young did with the endowment is he did a similar thing with that ceremony is that some of the changes that he made were done in order to cement and solidify the apostolic claims of authority that were made by Brigham Young after Joseph Smith passed away and after the apostles took over the leadership of the church. And with all of this in mind, the theory is that Brigham Young is the one who introduced the three apostles into the endowment. The theory is that Joseph Smith did not have them there. In fact, we could understand why he wouldn't have them there because of all the problems it creates chronologically. But that Brigham Young put them there in order to once again show that the apostles have a superior position of leadership in the church. In fact, the apostles, Peter, James, and John, are appearing to Adam. And Adam, of course, is the pre-mortal Michael. He's a big deal in Mormonism. He is one of the Trinity who created this earth. He is the father of all mankind. And in Brigham Young's theology, he was also the father of the spirits of all mankind. And so what better way of showing how important the apostles are than to have Peter, James, and John show up after Adam has been cast out of the Garden of Eden along with his wife Eve, not just to pass the time of day, but the apostles are the ones who are designated by God to instruct Adam to give him the first token of the Aaronic priesthood, together with its accompanying name, sign, and penalty, and to give to Adam the further light and knowledge that Elohim had promised them they would receive. So there is a distinct possibility that the appearance of Peter, James, and John in the temple endowment was not done in order to create a liminal space, as I have outlined here, but may have actually been done for much more base and possibly political motives on the part of Brigham Young. But regardless of why it is, that they appear in the endowment ceremony with Adam and Eve, the fact that Peter, James, and John are there in the flesh nevertheless creates a liminal space where anything can happen, where time is not linear, and ends up structuring the endowment ceremony in such a way as to create a holy, sacred, perhaps supernatural space where the divine can work, revelation can be received, and indeed, God can appear 
even if only symbolically, on the other side of the veil. And so that concludes tonight's podcast. I'm really grateful for this opportunity to once again be podcasting. Please, if you haven't done it yet, go to RadioFreeMormon.org and make that monthly contribution today. I am depending on you more than ever. And I look forward to presenting many, many more podcasts in the future. Thank you so much for your listenership. Thank you so much for your support. Thank you so much for all of your kind words. And now in closing, I'm going to play a song for this podcast titled Let's Do the Time Warp Again. I'll give you three guesses as to what that song's going to be, and the first two don't count. Here it is from a show that some of you may have seen, and you may have even thrown toast toward the screen during the movie. This is Radio Free Mormon, signing off the air. It's astounding. Time is fleeting. Madness takes its toll. But listen closely. Not for very much longer. I've got to keep control. Just a jump to the left. And then the the right. With your hands on your hips. You can't see me No, not at all In another dimension With voyeuristic intention Well secluded I see all With a bit of a mind flip You're into the time slip And nothing Can ever be the same You're spaced out on sensation Like you're under Hit